Welcome everyone to Fast Asleep. Thank you all of you for being here. Are you ready to get away for a little bit? We have a ridiculous but very entertaining story for you from F. Scott Fitzgerald. Now in this tale we will travel back, of course we will, to the roaring 1920s and to the fairy tale home of the Oh, I gotta figure a way to describe these people. Um, insanely rich. Yeah. Don't be surprised then if we find a little darkness along the way. Please tuck in right now for the first of four episodes as we bring you part one of The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. John T. Unger came from a family that had been well known in Hades, a small town on the Mississippi River, for several generations. John's father had held the amateur golf championship through many a heated contest. Mrs. Unger was known from hot box to hot bed, as the local phrase went, for her political addresses. And young John T. Unger, who had just turned 16, had danced all the latest dances from New York before he put on long trousers. Yeah, 1920s. And now, for a certain time, he was to be away from home. That respect for a New England education, which is the bane of all provincial places, which drains them yearly of their most promising young men, had seized upon his parents. Nothing would suit them but that he should go to St. Midas School near Boston. Hades was too small to hold their darling and gifted son. Now in Hades, as you know if you've ever been there, the names of the most fashionable preparatory schools and colleges, well, they mean very little. The inhabitants have been so long out of the world that they make a show of keeping up to date in dress and manners and literature. They depend to a great extent on hearsay and uh, a function that in Hades would be considered elaborate would doubtless be hailed by a Chicago beef princess as perhaps a little tacky. John T. Unger was on the eve of departure. Mrs. Unger, with maternal fatuity, she packed his trunks full of linen suits and electric fans and Mr. Unger presented his son with an asbestos pocketbook stuffed with money remember you are always welcome here he said you can be sure boy that we'll keep the home fires burning <clears throat> uh, I know, answered 
John huskily. Don't forget who you are and where you come from, continued his father proudly, and you can do nothing to harm you. You are an unger from Hades. And so the old man and the young shook hands, and John walked away with tears streaming from his eyes. Ten minutes later, he had passed outside the city limits, and he stopped to glance back for the last time. Over the gates, the old-fashioned Victorian motto seemed strangely attractive to him, for his father had tried time and time again to have it changed to something with a little more push and verve about it, such as, Hades, your opportunity, or else a plain welcome sign set over a hearty handshake pricked out in electric lights. The old motto ah, it was a little depressing. Mr. Unger had thought, uh, anyway, now, John took his look and then set his face resolutely toward his destination. And as he turned away, the lights of Hades against the sky seemed full of warm and passionate beauty. St. Midas School is half an hour from Boston. In a Rolls-Pierce motor car, the actual distance will never be known, for no one except John T. Unger had ever arrived there save in a Rolls-Pierce, and probably no one ever will again. St. Midas is the most expensive and the most exclusive boys' preparatory school in the world. Now, John's first two years there passed pleasantly. The fathers of all the boys were money kings, and John spent his summers visiting at fashionable resorts. While he was very fond of all the boys he visited, their fathers struck him as being much of a piece. And in his boyish way, he often wondered at their exceeding sameness. When he told them where his home was, they would ask jovially, <laughs> Pretty hot down there? And John would muster a faint smile and answer, It certainly is. His response would have been heartier had they not all made this joke. At best, varying it with, is it hot enough for you down there? Which he hated just as much. In the middle of his second year at school, a quiet, handsome boy named Percy Washington had been put in John's form. The newcomer was pleasant in his manner, oh, and exceedingly well-dressed, even for St. Midas. But for some reason, he kept aloof from the other boys. The only person with whom he was intimate was John T. Unger. But 
even to John, he was entirely uncommunicative concerning his home or his family. That he was wealthy, oh, that went without saying, but beyond a few such deductions, John knew little of his friend. So, it promised rich confectionery for his curiosity when Percy invited him to spend the summer at his home in the West. He accepted without hesitation. It was only when they were in the train that Percy became, for the first time, rather communicative. One day, while they were eating lunch in the dining car and discussing the imperfect characters of several of the boys at school, Percy suddenly changed his tone and made an abrupt remark. My father, he said, is by far the richest man in the world. Oh, said John politely. He could think of no answer to make to this confidence. He considered, that's very nice, but it sounded hollow. And he was on the point of saying, really? But refrained, since it would seem to question Percy's statement. And such an astounding statement could scarcely be questioned. Mm -hmm. By far the richest, repeated Percy. Well, I was reading in the World Almanac, began John, that there was this one man in America with an income of over five million a year and four men with incomes of over three million a year and, oh, no, they're, they're nothing. Percy's mouth was a half moon of scorn. Catch penny capitalists, financial small fry, petty merchants, and money lenders. Now my father could buy them out and not even know he'd done it. Oh, but, uh, how does he, mm, why haven't they put down his income tax? Because he doesn't pay any. At least, he pays a little one, but he doesn't pay any on his real income. Oh, well, he must be very rich, said John, simply. Well, I, I, I'm glad, because, uh, I like very rich people. The richer a fellow is, the, the better I like him. There was a look of passionate frankness upon his dark face. You know, I remember the Schnellitzer Murphys last Easter. Vivian Schnellitzer Murphy, why, she had rubies as big as hen's eggs. Yeah. And sapphires, oh, they were like globes with little lights inside them. Mm. I love jewels, agreed Percy enthusiastically. Of course, I wouldn't want anyone at school to know about it, but I've got quite a collection myself. I used to collect them instead of stamps. Oh, well, diamonds, <laughs> continued John eagerly. The Schnellitzer Murphys, why, they had diamonds as big as walnuts. Oh, that's nothing. Now Percy had leaned forward, and he dropped his voice to a low whisper. That is nothing at all. My father has a diamond bigger than the Ritz-Carlton 
hotel. The Montana sunset lay between two mountains like a gigantic bruise from which dark arteries spread themselves over a poisoned sky. An immense distance under the sky crouched the village of fish, minute, dismal, and forgotten. There were twelve men, so it was said, in the village of fish, twelve somber and inexplicable souls who sucked a lean milk from the almost literally bare rock upon which a mysterious populatory force had begotten them. They'd become a race apart, these twelve men of fish, like some species developed by an early whim of nature which, on second thought, had abandoned them to struggle and extermination. Out of the blue-black bruise in the distance crept a long line of moving lights upon the desolation of the land. And the twelve men of fish, oh well, they gathered like ghosts at the shanty depot to watch the passing of the seven o'clock train, the transcontinental express from Chicago. Six times or so a year, the transcontinental express, through some inconceivable jurisdiction, stopped at the village of fish. And when this occurred, a figure or so would disembark, mount into a buggy that always appeared from out of the dusk, and drive off toward the bruised sunset. The observation of this pointless and preposterous phenomenon had become a sort of cult among the men of fish. To observe, that, that was all. There remained in them none of the vital quality of illusion, which would make them wonder or speculate. Else a religion might have grown up around these mysterious visitations. But, but the men of fish, oh, they were beyond all religion. The barest and most savage tenets of, well, even Christianity could gain no foothold on that barren rock. So there was no altar, no priest, no sacrifice. Only each night at seven, the silent concourse by the shanty depot, a congregation who lifted up a prayer of dim, anemic wonder. Well, on this June night, the great brakeman, whom had they deified anyone they might well have chosen as their celestial protagonist, had ordained that the seven o'clock train should leave its human or inhuman deposit at Fish. So at two minutes after seven, mm-hmm, Percy Washington and John T. Unger disembarked, hurried past the spellbound, the agape, the fearsome eyes of those twelve men of fish, mounted into a buggy, which had obviously appeared from nowhere, and drove away.
After half an hour, when the twilight had coagulated into dark, the silent man who was driving the buggy hailed an opaque body somewhere ahead of them in the gloom. In response to his cry, it turned upon them a luminous disk which regarded them like a malignant eye out of the fathomable night. As they came closer, John saw that it was the tail light of an immense automobile, oh, larger and more magnificent than any he had ever seen. Its body was of gleaming metal, richer than nickel and lighter than silver, and the hubs of the wheels were studded with iridescent geometric figures of green and yellow. John did not dare to guess whether they were glass or jewel. Two men, dressed in glittering livery, such as one sees in the pictures of royal processions in London, were standing at attention beside the car. As the two young men dismounted from the buggy, they were greeted in some language which the guest could not understand, but which seemed to be an extreme form of the two men's dialect. Get in! said Percy to his friend, as their trunks were tossed to the ebony roof of the limousine. <laughs> Sorry we had to bring you this far in the buggy, but of course it wouldn't do for the people on the train or those godforsaken fellas in fish to see this automobile. Gosh, what a car! Now this ejaculation was provoked by its interior John saw that the upholstery consisted of a thousand minute, oh, and exquisite tapestries of silk woven with jewels and embroideries and set upon a background of cloth of gold. <sighs> the two armchair seats in which the boys luxuriated were covered with stuff that resembled duvetine. It's a velvet made from silk, but it seemed woven in number, numberless colors of the ends of ostrich feathers. Oh, what a car! cried John again in amazement. Oh, this thing? Percy laughed. Why, it's just an old junk we use for a station wagon. But this time, they were gliding along through the darkness, and now they made their way to the break between the two mountains. Now, we'll be there in an hour and a half, said Percy, looking at the clock. <laughs> I may as well tell you, it is not going to be like anything you ever saw before. Well, if the car was any indication of what John would see, he was prepared to be astonished indeed. The simple piety prevalent in Hades has the earnest worship of and respect for riches as the first article of its creed. And had John felt otherwise than radiantly humble before them, or his parents, would have turned away in horror at the blasphemy.
They had now reached and were entering the break between those two mountains, and almost immediately the way became much rougher. Ah, if the moon shone down here, you'd see that we're in a big gulch, said Percy, trying to peer out of the window. He spoke a few words into the mouthpiece, and immediately the footman turned on a searchlight and swept the hillsides with an immense beam. Rocky, you see, an ordinary car would be knocked to pieces in half an hour. In fact, it'd take a tank to navigate it unless you knew the way. <laughs> and now you notice we're going uphill. And they were obviously ascending. And within a few minutes, the car was crossing a high rise where they caught a glimpse of a pale moon newly risen in the distance. Oh, the car stopped suddenly and several figures took shape out of the dark beside it. These were men also, and again, the two young men were saluted in the same dimly recognizable dialect. And then the other men set to work and, oh, four immense cables dangling from overhead were attached with hooks to the hubs of the great jeweled wheels. At a resounding, hail, John felt the car being lifted slowly from the ground, up and up, clear of the tallest rocks on both sides, and then higher until he could see a wavy moonlit valley stretched out before him in sharp contrast to that quagmire of rocks that they had just left. Only on one side was there still any rock, and then suddenly there was no rock beside them or anywhere around. It was apparent that they had surmounted some immense knife blade of stone projecting perpendicularly into the air. Well, in a moment, they were going down again. And finally, with a soft bump, they landed upon the smooth earth. The worst is over, said Percy, squinting out the window. It's only five miles from here and our own road. Tapestry brick all the way. This belongs to us. This is where the United States ends, as Father says. Are we in Canada? We are not. We are in the middle of the Montana Rockies, but you are now on the only five square miles of land in the country that's never been surveyed. What? Why hasn't it? Did they forget it? Nope, said Percy, grinning. They tried to do it three times. The first time, my grandfather corrupted a whole department of the state survey. <laughs> and the second time, he had the official maps of the United States tinkered with. <laughs> that held them for 15 years. Yeah, the last time was harder. My father fixed it so that uh, their compasses were in the strongest magnetic field ever artificially set up. Well, he had a whole set of surveying instruments 
made with a slight defection that would allow for this territory not to appear. And he substituted them for the ones that were to be used. And then he had a river deflected and he had what looked like a village built up on its banks so that they'd see it and think it was a town 10 miles farther up the valley. <laughs> There's only one thing my father's afraid of, he concluded. Only one thing in the world that could be used to find us out. What's that? Percy sank his voice to a whisper. Aeroplanes, he breathed. We've got uh, half a dozen anti-aircraft guns, and we've arranged it so far, but uh, there have been a few uh, deaths and a great many prisoners. Not that we mind that, you know, father and I, but yeah, it upsets mother and the girls, and there's always the chance that sometime we won't be able to arrange it. Well, shreds and tatters of chinchilla, courtesy clouds in the green moon's heaven, were passing the green moon like precious eastern stuffs, paraded for the inspection of some tartar con. It seemed to John that it was day and that he was looking at huh, some lads sailing above him in the air, showering down tracks and patent medicine circulars with their messages of hope for despairing rock-bound hamlets. It seemed to him that he could see them look down out of the clouds and stare, and stare at whatever there was to stare at in this place, whither he was bound. What then? Were they induced to land by some insidious device there to be immured far from patent medicines and from tracks until the judgment day or should they fail to fall into the trap? Did a quick puff of smoke and the sharp round of a splitting shell bring them drooping to earth? Oh, and upset Percy's mother and sisters. Oh. <sighs> John shook his head, and the wraith of a hollow laugh <laughs> issued silently from his parted lips. <laughs> what desperate transaction lay hidden here? What a moral expedient of a bizarre Croesus, a king from 6th century BC. What terrible and golden mystery. Well, the chinchilla clouds had drifted past now, and outside the Montana night was bright as day. The tapestry brick of the road was smooth to the tread of the great tires as they rounded a still moonlit lake. They passed into darkness for a moment, a pine grove pungent and cool, 
and then they came out into a broad avenue of lawn. And John's exclamation of pleasure was simultaneous with Percy's taciturn, We're home. Full in the light of the stars, an exquisite chateau rose from the borders of the lake, climbed in marble radiance, half the height of an adjoining mountain, and then melted in grace, in perfect symmetry, in translucent feminine languor, into the massed darkness of a forest of pine. Ah, the many towers, the slender tracery of the sloping parapets, the chiseled wonder of a thousand yellow windows with their oblongs and hectagons and triangles of golden light, the shattered softness of the intersecting planes of starshine and blue shade all trembled on John's spirit like a chord of music. On one of the towers, the tallest, the blackest at its base, an arrangement of exterior lights at the top made a sort of floating fairyland. And as John gazed up in warm enchantment, the faint sound of violins drifted down in a rococo harmony that was like, well, nothing he had ever heard before. And then in a moment, the car stopped before wide, high marble steps around which the night air was fragrant with a host of flowers. At the top of the steps, two great doors swung silently open and amber light flooded out upon the darkness, silhouetting the figure of an exquisite lady with black, high-piled hair, who held out her arms toward them. Mother, Percy was saying, this is my friend, John Unger, from Hades. Afterward, John remembered that first night as a daze of many colors, of quick sensory impressions, of music soft as a voice in love, and of beauty of things, uh, lights and shadows and motions and faces. Now there was a white-haired man who stood drinking a many-hued cordial from a crystal thimble set on a golden stem. There was a girl with a flowery face dressed like Titania with braided sapphires in her hair. There was a room where the solid, soft gold of the walls yielded to the pressure of his hand. And a room that was like a platonic conception of the ultimate prison. Ceiling, floor, and all, it was lined with an unbroken mass of diamonds, mm, diamonds of every size and shape, until lit with tall violet lamps in the corners, it, it 
dazzled the eyes with a whiteness that could be compared only with itself, beyond human wish or dream. Through a maze of these rooms, the two boys wandered. Sometimes the floor under their feet would flame in brilliant patterns from lighting below, patterns of barbaric clashing colors, of pastel delicacy, of sheer whiteness, or of subtle and intricate mosaic, surely from some mosque on the Adriatic Sea. Sometimes, beneath layers of thick crystal, he would see blue or green water swirling, inhabited by vivid fish and growths of rainbow foliage. Then they would be treading on furs of every texture and color, or along corridors of palest ivory, unbroken, as though carved complete from the gigantic tusks of dinosaurs, extinct before the age of man. Then, a hazily remembered transition. And they were at dinner, where each plate was of two almost imperceptible layers of solid diamond, between which was curiously worked a filigree of emerald design, a shaving sliced from green air. Music, plangent and unobtrusive, drifted down through far corridors. His chair feathered and curved insidiously to his back, seemed to engulf and overpower him as he drank his first glass of port. Oh, he tried drowsily to answer a question that had been asked him, but the honeyed luxury that clasped his body, added to the illusion of sleep, jewels, fabrics, wines, and metals blurred before his eyes into a sweet mist. Yes, he replied with a polite effort, it certainly is hot enough for me down there. He managed to add a ghostly laugh. Then, without movement, without resistance, well, he seemed to float off and away, leaving an iced dessert that was pink as a dream. He fell asleep. When he awoke, he knew that several hours had passed. He was in a great quiet room with ebony walls and a dull illumination that was too faint, too subtle to be called a light. His young host was standing over him. You fell asleep at dinner, Percy was saying. I nearly did too. It was such a treat to be comfortable again after this year of school. Servants undressed and bathed you while you were sleeping. Uh, is this a, a bed or a cloud? sighed John, 
Percy, Percy, before you go, I want to apologize. What? For what? For doubting you. When you said you had a diamond as big as the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. <laughs> Percy smiled. I thought you didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. It's that mountain, you know. What? What mountain? The mountain the chateau rests on. It's not very big for a mountain. But except for about uh, 50 feet of sod and gravel on top, it's solid diamond. One diamond. One cubic mile without a flaw. Hey, aren't you listening? Say, but John T. Younger had again fallen asleep. That's the end of this episode. Please come back for part two.